0: your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com.
1: Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.
2: Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm delighted to say my guest this week is the WPSA chairman, Jason Ferguson. We're going to come on to his role as chairman shortly, but we should... Start, Jason, with your playing career. You had quite a long playing career. How did you first discover snooker?
3: Well, do you know, I, I, I grew up um, in a mining town, and like many, my, my father was a miner, my grandfathers were miners, and I suppose like many people in those towns, we we actually went to uh, Butlins for our holiday. Yeah. And I was about ten, eleven years old. I walked into this holiday camp, and I was absolutely mesmerised. You know, with with this with this billiard room, and I just couldn't leave it alone. You know, from that day on, it was it was a fascination. Just couldn't get the ball in the hole, and I just, I just had to keep trying. So that was my, my, um, my beginning, really, and uh, it went from there. Small table at home, and uh, you know, the, I suppose the rest is history. Now mm. it's a long time ago. You worked your way work through the amateur ranks. You, you turned
2: professional. What, what was that like to suddenly be sort of mixing it with, with the professionals? Well,
3: for me, it was, a, it was a huge mark in my career. I mean, at, at the time, there were only there were 128 professionals on the tour. But actually, there were around 700 amateur players yep. playing regularly in amateur snooker, and only eight players a year allowed to turn professional. So, you know, it was quite a tall order. And then, after, after winning the Pontins, I'd qualified for the final stage of the Pro Ticket Pro Ticket Playoffs, uh, and 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 qualified by the skin in my teeth. Actually, in 1990, on my 21st birthday, believe it or okay. not. And it was a great for me. It was. Um, it was a moment in my career where I say, you know, I've actually achieved this now. What I'd set out to do was, as a young, just a young boy, and I remember that conversation with my, my careers teacher at school. He said, what do you want to be, son? I said, well, I want to be a snooker player. He went, you may as well have come in here and said you want to be an astronaut. Now, what do you really want to do, he said. and, I, and I, I, So for me, it was a big, it was a big moment, really, um, to turn professional. But, but in, in some ways, and I, and I suppose this is probably why I'm sat here now as chairman it's, it's, it was actually a disappointment to me as well because mm. I'd been used to playing four probably three four amateur events a week and we were used to playing regular top class snooker yeah. in and around the clubs and it was a tremendous amateur circuit that we had back then and actually the day I turned professional I suddenly found that we had eight events in a year and <laughs> I was in the qualifying rounds, and none of my friends, who I'd travelled with for many years, had turned professional, other than Ken Doherty, actually, mm. uh, at the same time. But most of my friends had, had, had fallen uh, in the qualifiers, and I found myself alone at, at Blackpool, Norbert Castle, looking round, thinking, "Is this really it? You know, <laughs> is, is this <laughs> this is I the just... big time?" And, yeah. it, and it, you know, it, it's really then when the hard work comes in, and it's something. It's something now that I actually relate to the new players coming on the mm. tour. I never want them to have that experience. Mm. I want them to come in. I want to be able to say, Welcome to the World's Snooker Tour. Mm. This is where it begins, you know, and, and we do that now as an induction to new players. And so for me, you know, that was, I suppose, the first time I thought, well, you know, actually, you know, surely the game could be much bigger than this, or the sport, as I'm going to mm. call it now, of course. Mm. Yes. And uh, <laughs> so, so that was uh, really my start of my playing career, and uh, it was tough at the start. I had, I would say, four or five good years, and um, you know it was uh, an enjoyable time. In the
2: well, what you did do—you played three times at the Crucible, which of course is the, the great sort of holy grail for any snooker player. And I ran you know, on two occasions, both Hendry and Higgins, John Higgins, very close.
3: What was it like playing playing there? Well, I mean, it was fantastic for me. My, my first time at the Crucible Theatre, I played Neil Folds. Uh, in fact, I, I bumped into him here today. Of course, mm. he's, he's obviously. Um, in the studio and the event, always nice to see Neil, and I think he was, I mean, top five then, mm. and uh, I, you know, I was just the new boy on the block. So it was a very daunting task for me to arrive at the Crucible Theatre, and I was badly behind in the match. I remember, I remember I was um, well behind and really a no hoper you know, as, as many were at the, in those early days at the Crucible, and and I eventually uh, pulled him back to eight each, and it was a tough, tough battle in the end, and uh, he, he actually beat me. But to, but the Crucible Theatre, it is the you know, it, it is that special moment when you walk out from behind that curtain as a professional snooker player. It's the thing you dream of. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's the one thing. You know, as a child, I was inspired by Steve Davis. You know, he was a hero. I saw him at the Crucible. You know, you watch him win his first World Championship. To actually come out from behind that curtain is quite a, a moment in your, in your career. And and, uh, and of course, you know, a couple of tough draws after that as well. I played uh, Stephen Hendry. I think that was about 96, you'll probably correct me if, if, if I'm Something wrong, about but that, yeah, I think yeah. it was 96 I played Hendry, and, and to be honest, really could have won that match, mm. I was 6-3 in front at the mid-session, um, you know, I fought long and hard in the game, and uh, I lost, lost 10-8 again, believe it or not, and, um, but ran, ran Stephen to the wire really. He went on to win
2: the title of course mm. you 're also a record holder i 've got to remind you of this because I was I think I was the only person watching at the end. It was when you played Gary wilkinson in the, in the <laughs> world championship Qualifying, longest ever bested nineteen frame match six hundred and ninety eight minutes so that 's uh, what's that it's nearly 12 hours D-
3: does that does that record still stand there? oh yes it stands it stands i mean and he
2: won know, we should say he
3: won 10-9 yeah do you know and, and, and i mean it's a very a very memorable match actually because i mean gary was a great friend of mine we grew up in the same town we practiced together we knew we knew each other's game inside out you know we spent hours and hours um, uh, you know practicing and playing together and really it was, it was a real battle we were both you know, on that top 32 <laughs> of, of our career you I know, should say
2: was, this was the final qualifying round of the world championship it, it, so it was really important it, as well. was, yeah. it was.
3: it was one frame from a, another appearance at the Crucible Theatre and, and when you've been a professional player for a few years mm. and you, you, you've had a couple of good years, a couple of bad years it means the world to yeah. you and, and, and honestly we, neither of us would give anything away basically and it was a, it was a tough match great player Gary Wilkinson um, obviously um, world match play champion he was at one time it was it was, a, it was just a tough battle and I, I do remember I do remember very very clearly when I actually lost that match in the deciding frame on the colours and I walked out of there and I wish I'd lost 10 nil mm. because you've spent all day battling giving yeah. everything you've got I remember getting in the car shortly after the match and just not stopping <laughs> all the way home you know straight down the outside of the match <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah quite uh, a disappointing day and uh, I think I went home and closed the curtains for a couple of days and stopped in after that one. <laughs> well,
2: I have to I have to tell you, Jason, I wouldn't have minded you losing 10-0 either, because I had to wait to the end. Because in those days, I was—you know—I was. You know, I was just starting out as a journalist and was very sort of professional. I thought well, it's a world championship. I'll be there to the end. So I waited for to get quotes from the winner, which of course at the end was Gary, and he and he could barely speak because he's come off. He's absolutely exhausted, and he just said, "Well, it doesn't matter how you get there." And that was it. That was the quote. So yes. I probably could have gone home about six <laughs> hours earlier. But around this time, uh, just after that, you you made your sort of first foray into snooker politics didn't yes. you, you join the board you eventually became chairman of the say when it was differently structured yes. why did you get
3: into that and and it didn't it didn't end great for you did it it didn't end great but you know actually I, I did make a mark at the time mm. and, and and obviously tried to to um, bring about a number of you know new initiatives and a restructure which, which incidentally actually proved to work in the yes, end because yeah. we, we actually came back to finish the job but the, it, at the time I, I got involved it was really Terry Griffiths that got me involved at the time who was a great you know, respected player and, and also somebody who'd been involved in the sport at every level and still is still works for us in, uh, you know, in training our coaches and he's a real ambassador and he called me and said, "Look, we, you know, we we want to make some changes. We want some younger blood on the board. We want current players." Mm. Uh, this, at the time, you know, predominantly the sport was run by professional players, ex-professional players, and it was a members' mm. organisation run by its members. So it, it was a, a very old-fashioned uh, structure, and, I, and I, I steamed into that uh, along with um, you know um, Terry and uh, and a few others, and and we tried to bring about change. And the the reason we did that was actually we were down to I think seven events at the time and, and I just referred to the earlier comment that I made about the, the actual day I turned professional and realised we actually didn't play that much snooker mm. anymore and that it was really driven from that frustration it had been probably during my period as a professional player it was probably the biggest decline in snooker history mm. it, it had Declined year on year, really. To, it had some new events which had only lasted a short space of time, and I really, I, I felt a real um, need to, to try and make some changes. So, and I was very well supported by a lot of my peers and professional players. So, so we did that, and I worked my way through. I, I became director of international relations at the time, vice chairman, and then eventually did a did a period of chairman for six months. But I, I was I was chairman at a period of, of what I would call an impossible time. Snooker politics, it was um, you could split the sport into, into two halves and people didn't talk to each other yeah. anymore and yeah. it was a very volatile time and I, and I made my stance and, and actually in the end um, I actually took the decision to walk away um, I, I wasn't pushed in any way, shape or form, I actually left. Uh, but it took a toll on your playing career because you were still playing at the time Yeah, the, the last two years of my playing career I, I was obviously heavily involved and you'll remember we, we were involved with a quite a, a serious court case at the time, or a number of I think when I t- took over there were 14 items of litigation <laughs> when I left there was one uh, which actually got settled on, on an agreement that I actually put in place before I left so you know it was one of those things where um, you know we, we were just trying to move forward and the, the sport was strangled you know and I actually I actually remember the, the, the company really was very parochial in terms of it being a British sport mm. and and I, at that time, you, you probably don't know this day, but at that time I'd been working out in Asia with Sintu Bulsuravan, mm. who I, I refer to as the Godfather of Asian snooker. Mm. Sintu and I had opened the Asian Academy with the support of the Sports Ministry in, in Thailand, and we were starting to bring new players from all over Asia. And you know, one of those players we brought to our academy for training was Ding Junhui. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we saw Ding Junhui, and, and Sintu and I looked at each other, and we said, you know, this boy could be boom time for snooker <laughs> in Asia. And it cost the association, the, the whole initiatives cost the association £50,000 per year. We were investing £50,000, which is a very small amount of money in terms of the global sport mm. that we now have. And at, but, and at the time it was, it was criticised. You know, it was heavily criticised both from within and from, from outside of the sport. Mm. And people said, oh, why are you wasting money on, on that? Jason, this is a British sport. You know, it'll always be British. And for me, that was the final word. This was never going to work, and, <laughs> oh. and I took the decision to resign. So I, I left. I left for a, you know a long period. I, I, I played a little bit after that, but the last that last two years I hadn't really played at all. Mm. You know, I turned up to some events. I hadn't practiced well. I hadn't prepared myself simply because I was you know I was being pulled from pillar to post on the business end. So, but you went. You became mayor of somewhere yes you know Dave I've had one one of the most interesting lives and an insight into different parts of Mm. of life which I'm so thankful for really especially today because you know the number of cities that we deal with and uh, and the politics that we have to come across and I I actually went away I thought right what what, what will I do now and I, I had a business for a while in the automotive industry um, which turned a very good business, it looked after me for a period of 10 years, I did a little bit of of property development I I got involved in a local project um, a regeneration project for the town, we we were in an ex-mining town which Mm. didn't have a mine anymore Mm. and a a few friends and I, we we actually um, between us, we we, we formed a charity which bought the mine and regenerated the mine, creating jobs Mm. and regeneration schemes, we we actually built the first eco town in um, in the UK yeah. and, and that's really how I ended up getting involved in politics it was through that many of my colleagues at the time were, were councillors and you know I, I joined the, the town council and eventually I suppose it a bit like the world snooker story you, you start to get your head into projects and you know oh, we could do this we could do this and you know I'm, I'm, I'm a bit full-on like that I, I am actually a workaholic maybe mm-hmm. you probably know mm-hmm. this and I, I love projects and mm-hmm. I love making things work and I can't sleep. I can't wait to get up in the morning. And, and I was like that in the town, and, and eventually I, they made me the mayor of the town. And uh, I, I did a year as uh, mayor of Ollerton and Bootham which is Newark and Sherwood district. And uh, it, was a, it was a good year. And, you know, in some ways it was a good year for me because I, I, I learned so much about uh, public finance, you know, h- how to finance projects in a town, what brings in, you know, what's the demographic, what brings in income into a town, mm. what makes a town tick, what... I know, and this has been a great insight for World Snooker because I'm, I'm actually on the front line of finding new cities, new hosts, new places to mm. stage events. And I find that the, the, the public purse is not that dissimilar in the countries that we deal with all over the world, despite the different political mm. environments. It's pretty much the same formula, and, and this is what's helped us grow in China, of course. So how did you end up coming back to the WPBSA? Oh, it's, It was a difficult year for me, that, that final year actually just, um, I, I actually um, I wasn't really sure where I was going at that point, I was probably going to run for MP for New York and Sherwood at the next opportunity, that was, that was the next step, but I'd actually had a health scare that year as well, I'd been diagnosed with a, I had a tumour um, growing on, on the side of my nose and it, it was, um, turned out to be quite a dangerous form of cancer right. and I, I was in and out of the hospital, I had a couple of operations and plastic surgery and had had that repaired and I was sat actually I I remember it to this day I was sat at home with a bandage around my face feeling a bit sorry for myself Mm. and I was sat there thinking wow is this what you know is this is this well you know where I've ended up Mm. and and the phone rang and it was Barry Hearn he said Jason he said "Um, what are you doing (laughs) I said well you know I've got a bit on but um, Mm. (laughs) what have you got in mind he said well look he said we're going to restructure this sport, he said. Um, he says, and everywhere I go, he said, people tell me you're the man to come and do the deal. Um, so I was invited, really, to to talk to the board at the time. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to come back because, you know, my previous experience, I'd left with a bitter taste. I, I'd, I'd lost a playing career, which was probably got another 10 years left mm-hmm. in it, really. I mean, my, my colleagues and friends are still playing today at a high mm-hmm. level. and So I, I walked away from that. I walked away from the board. I wasn't sure if I wanted to come back. And I had another career, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but Barry and I sat down, and we sat down with the current, the, the new World Snooker Board, I should say, who had just been appointed. And I talked about what I'd tried to do back in two thousand and one and two, and I was actually instrumental in setting up World Snooker Limited, which is the company Barry Hearn is now chairman of. Mm. And during those early days, our vision was to bring in investors and partners, and that's exactly the business structure that we have now. Mm. And 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 we. I don't think we were there very long, Barry and I. And we, we, I said, well, this is what I wanted to do. He said, well, listen, that's exactly what we want to do now. How do you think? I said, well, you know, the one thing I did say, I said, look, I stipulate that the WPBSA retains a stake in that company, even if we, you know, we bring in other investors. And that's what we did. And we own 26% of World Snooker today. It's um, a tremendous investment for us as a a sport. It's brought in new events. It's allowed us to grow. Um, But at the same time, you know, it's kept an element of control over you know making sure the events are fair the structures are fair and everything else So I'm very pleased with how it's how it's turned out a great sense of unfinished business of course at the time Hmm. which just tipped me over the line
2: okay but of course it's a different role WPSA chairman now to when you first did it so can you just explain what your role actually is now
3: yeah, I, I mean, I'm I obviously in charge of uh, WBSA is the world governing body to to professional snooker. Um, now, within that, we, we work very closely with a number of amateur national governing bodies worldwide. So a great deal of, of international relations, a great deal of um, keeping a lot of people happy, shall we say, and looking for new opportunities to, to regenerate and develop the sport properly um so sports development is 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 a very important part but we also look after rules regulations disciplinary for the world snooker tour so what you see here today um, a world snooker event is, is actually being run under the wpbsa's rules and regulations and governance so you know we, we do everything from uh, you know making sure the events are fair but also i mean i have to say our disciplinary is getting um, you know disciplinary side has become less of a problem for us these days um, you know players are now very understanding about their PR activities and what they need to do and, and their responsibilities to the general public. And, of course, sports today are becoming under greater scrutiny. We're, we're looking at what's happening in FIFA. i uh, poor old Sebco this week. I'm looking at what's going on in athletics. And, and, and I'm at, that, I'm at, I'm at that, that sharp end now of, of, of governance in sport, so really maintaining the integrity of the sport and the talk. And, and and from that, I also sit on the board of, of World Snooker Limited looking after that 26% investment we have in the commercial rights. And what that allows me to do, it allows me to act um, a little bit commercially as well, um, assisting World Snooker, finding new sites, new cities, and being on the front line of that. And and I, I really enjoy that that, that that going out there into the unknown and with a scrap of paper with a couple of ideas on it and turning it into an event. I, I love that side of it, so... Um, so yeah, go- it, I suppose what is it? It's governance of the sport, and it's, um, it's a, a role I very much enjoy.
2: And what? How does it work in terms of your relationship with Barry Hearn? Is the, is there the sort of other clashes at all, or, or does it? Has it worked sort of in, in, in tandem?
3: It, it, I mean, the, the proof is in the eating. Uh, if we if we look at where we started, we we started out with six events five years ago under this new structure. Mm-hmm. You know, we now have twenty five, twenty six events worldwide. <laughs> with new markets opened up so it, it is working and it's working in tandem the one thing that World Snooker, World Snooker Limited is, is a commercial rights company it's aggressive, it runs events it owns the events and it makes the events work commercially and it doesn't have to worry about the politics in the sport that's my problem, mm. so as WPBSA chairman you know, I have to make sure that the politics remain stable, that we remain um, you know, clear in the public eye that we're, we're a clean sport and that's very important so it works in tandem, and you know, we have a few debates every now and again, I will say. And you know, Barry is a, a strong character, um, but with a great track record, of course. And you have to respect the way that he's, he's, he's globalized the television for this sport because the globalizing of television has obviously given us the opportunity to go out and work into some of those new markets. And we're, we're reaching, I think, 88 countries now with our, with our television. Um, so he. Yeah, a few clashes now and again, but they are, let's just call it good debate. Uh, I'll call it good debate. And, you know, the fact that we own a major stake in the company Barry's chairman of uh, means that he has to listen to the WPBSA, and that was really from the outset uh, the reason I wanted to retain that stake um, within the governing body.
2: Your role is a little bit like a diplomat. You do a lot of travelling, a hell of a lot of travelling. You have to sort of press the flesh, meet a lot of people, and sort of reassure them about what you're doing. And, but you seem to
3: enjoy that, and not, not everyone would, but you, you seem to. It is a very unusual life I lead actually Um, uh, and I do travel extensively and I find people, I I find, you know, I meet people and and that usually leads on to meeting somebody else and there's always somebody who loves our sport Mm. and we we always end up working with the cities closely. I mean, the the one thing I do is I go out and I listen to our potential new customers about what their needs are. I'll I'll describe it like that. So the last event we just did in Jiaqing in northern China was a new, completely new territory for us. And, and stemmed out of a relationship that, that, that we had with a, um, a partner that was opening a billiard club in, in Beijing. And yeah. uh, from a, a few conversations, you know, he and I travelled north. I had no idea where I was going. I was on my own in a strange <laughs> city in northern China on the Russian border. But, you know, I liked that challenge. Mm. You know, and we got there and we found venues. We found an opportunity with television, television. Um, we went to meet the local city. The local city said, wow, yeah, we've never had a major international event like this with television. Please, when, you know, when can you come? And, mm. you know, we opened up a, a brand new opportunity for the sport, and it was a hugely successful event in the end. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, very pleased with that, that's turned out. But it is, as you say, an, an unusual life. My, my travel schedule is bordering on the ridiculous sometimes, and sometimes you have to change plans at the last minute. Um, but that, I think that, that flexibility that the sport has today and I think that it's that vibrance that Barry's brought in as well in, in the commercial side to say well it's never too late to, to do a U-turn and go back the other way and do the event there you know? and, and we adopt that, that strategy at the front, front end so I very much enjoy that and I love meeting people, I love culture I love uh, understanding what a new culture is um, North, you know, Northern China is completely different to Southern China and The thing I've done by going up to that city in particular, just using that as an example, is I will go there and I'll find out what that city's needs are. Um, It's a rich city, it's an oil rich city. Uh, What what, what do they really want? And, you know, they want PR, they want to form relationships with other cities, perhaps. And, you know, we probably work with some of those other cities that they want to form relationships with. So it's about putting people together at, at that end. So... I very much enjoy it and and I enjoy understanding what our customers' needs are. And our customers are the cities that we go to, they are the people that buy the tickets, they're the fans that support snooker. And wherever they are in the world, we want to uh, be there and we want to do our job for those people.
2: And what's the strategy in terms of sort of identifying new markets? Do you target specific countries? Is it a question of following up leads maybe? How do you sort of decide where these tournaments
3: are going to be? It's, it's, a, good, it's a very good, a good question, David. And you know, so far, we, you know, our two biggest markets are obviously the UK and China. And China, we've, we've, we've grown to a point where we're very satisfied with what we have. Um, I don't envisage that we want to grow much further mm. across China. We've got you know four or five strong events across there. And realistically, that's about right for, for one country. Thailand's growing, as it always has done. It's now the number two sport on television again in, China, in Thailand. So we're doing a lot of sports development there again to try and regenerate more players. And we're seeing that with a few new winners this mm-hmm. year. Um, but new markets come really from... Um, you know, For us, sometimes it's leads that will just come in out of the blue. And sometimes, be, because we work with the national governing bodies worldwide we we work with the IBSF, which is a a federation which just kind of looks after the volunteerism around the world and it's usually you'll find within that volunteer sector in a country you'll find influential people who have a real passion for this sport and some of those leads come from that and some of them coming from us looking at the demo looking at the sorry looking at the tv markets for example you know i'd love to crack america um, you know South America I can see some opportunities just starting to trickle in from there and uh, there's a lots of AI you know, I tend to look at the map In my office I have a huge map of the world on the wall which will come no surprise mm. to you and I like to stick pins in it and say well, why aren't we there that looks like a big place and a big city and we want big events in big cities and we want to create as much profile for this sport as possible and for me at the grassroots end I'll never be satisfied until everybody has a kill.
2: Can you well can, on that then? Can you give us any sort of in, insight as to where snooker might be going that it hasn't been before? Well, I
3: mean, there are clear, clearly big markets that, that we've not been before. Um, I mean, let's look at I mean, the Americas is one. We, we've brought together a number of countries within the Americas region now as amateur federations, and we've created the first Americas Championship, which is obviously now providing a tour card. Two Brazilians on the tour, of course. Mm. Um, that's one market that I think is important there are big television companies in that area Uh, we've obviously got the Olympic Games in in, uh, South America as well coming up so that for me would be it's not on the immediate landscape but we are working on it behind the scenes and and it's slowly growing and I can see some opportunities that will come there, so that's one Uh, North America, we used to have great players from Canada Mm. over the years it's amazing how the decline in snooker in Canada reached such a low Really, af- after that, and play a lot of pool there, of course. So, mm. we're riding in off the back of that a little bit as well. Uh, and believe it or not, still play English billiards in Canada. So, th- there are a few sports in Canada, and I do see uh, th- that and the USA as well as, a- as an opportunity. The USA is a-, is a very tough market, and until I think it- until we can crack major television there. I think we will always um, be on the back foot in that market and and that's Barry's job Barry Mm. works in the States a lot with television and uh, you know he's obviously working away on that and working away at the grassroots somewhere in the middle the two will meet and we'll have an event (laughs) one day Middle East um, is another area Uh, we've been talking about the Middle East for quite some time there's a number of strong amateur events now across Mm. the Middle East Uh, Qatar hold the world pool championships we've got uh, various events across the UAE and, and for me, that will be a big market for us. not big in terms of participation, not huge population, um, but I think in terms of um, a- an area where where we should have a major event, we should have a major event in Dubai or in Qatar or one of these areas and Outside of that, of course russia Russia is a traditional billiard sports playing market. They play Russian pyramids, they play some snooker, they play some pool. There's all kinds of events. You know, we, we've learned of uh, events going on. This event called the Kremlin Cup every year, which is very popular. So working with the um, Russian Pyramid Federation, which is slightly different cues for, it's ball. It's a horrible game, actually. Well, I've sort of seen it. It's very difficult,
2: is what I mean by that. It is
3: difficult. It's 15 <laughs> white balls. And, it, and it, if, in fact, it... it it's one of those sports that has a responsibility for the birth of snooker because mm. this was the first sport that had a 15 balls in a triangle mm. and, and it, it came together with Blackpool and mm. Billiards and eventually we ended up with snooker. Mm. So it, it's got tradition, it's got history. It's also got sponsorship and it, it, it's interesting that those people are now looking at snooker saying, well, we, we really want the snooker because they're watching the snooker, of course, with the fantastic coverage we've got on television now. You know, we're talking about TV coverage. Let's just use this as an example of how how far this sport has come everybody remembers the Davis Taylor 85 final 18.5 million viewers watching television on one match mm. in predominantly in the UK of course today our world championship was watched by 538 million people in 89 different countries mm that 's the scale of the of the global market that we have now, and that 's the success of what we 've done we 've globalized the sport so these new new areas like Russia now are receiving television pictures um, south america you know they 're seeing snippets of what 's going on, and actually they, they're starting to there 's a love growing for this sport and uh, I just you know I, sh- I have this love for the sport and and I think everybody that's involved in our, in our company has this love, and we love making it happen so you know, hopefully we can open up some new territory still.
2: You mentioned the Olympics there, and uh, of course you, you led the bid to try and get in the Tokyo Olympics. Yes. It didn't happen. Is there any sense you had while you were involved in that that there was a bit of a thaw and that people were looking more kindly on snooker? I mean, when do you think it could happen? Could yes. it? Ha- could
3: it happen? I mean, let, let's put that into context. The Olympic bid was um, something that I had I'd been involved in in my previous regime. Um, in two thousand and one, I took snooker to the first multi sport mm. World Games. Uh, which was, interestingly enough, was in Japan. And it was really uh, an old contact in Japan that contacted me during this time and said, you know, there is an outside chance that you could put a bid together. I called the officer and I said, right, whatever everybody's doing, (laughs) stop. I said, we've got 48 hours to prepare an Olympic bid. We've got an opening to say that Tokyo could actually submit additional sports to the yeah. Tokyo Olympic Games now we thought at that stage we were completely out of the running we had no chance whatsoever and everybody said well we've got no chance but let's do it let's mm-hmm. learn from it so we, so we did we prepared a bit amazingly I mean our team in Bristol did a fantastic job our team in the amateur federations all contributed heavily and we were just we are working of course with pool and, and snook and three cushion billiards so we're, we're dealing with around 200 um, federations worldwide to try and pull this data together within 48 hours and considering the time zones involved as well no small task but we did it and we got it in and as it went in every, um, we thought no chance and believe it or not the ioc eventually opened the gates and said actually you know there are sports out there that probably deserved a, a pitch at this. And we became one of those sports on that shortlist um, as a pitch. And I, my only disappointment was that we didn't make the last cut. You know, we, we <laughs> fell out. When, when the cut went to eight um, in Tokyo, we actually fell out. And I, I was with uh, Sir Craig Reedy uh, just a couple of days ago, actually, in, in Glasgow, um, Vice President of the IOC, and had a little bit of a chat with him about, about how it worked. And, you know, I think we were actually very close to making that cut. We were certainly pushed quite heavily from Tokyo's side. And I think, you know, people have actually stood up and said, you know something, there is a new world sport on the landscape. Let's take a look at some of the sports that are in the Olympic Games. You don't like, I don't like to pluck sports out, but archery and, you know, in terms of participation, we are far over and above. And also, if you take a look at the Olympic Charter, we actually comply to the Olympic Charter in every way. What does it say in there? It says promote the core values of, of the Olympic movement. You know, we, David, we do that every day. We're on the front line, promoting our sport, promoting fairness, promoting opportunity for all, fair play. We integrate with cities, we're integrating with youth. It says in the Olympic Charter, educate through sport. Through our programs, functional snooker, our schools programs, we're educating young children through sport. We're doing all these things. You know, I just don't think we've told enough people in the past, Mm. and uh, and that's where you can help us.
2: Well, hopefully they're listening to this. (laughs) But but the the other side of that, I guess, is some people would say, and indeed Ronnie O'Sullivan has said, why should snooker be in the Olympics? You know, we've got the World Championship, which is our great pinnacle for for a snooker player. Do we need to be in the Olympic?
3: Why why do we need to be in the Olympic Games? That's a very good question, And, and, and of course, Ronnie O'Sullivan is entitled to his opinion. I don't agree with it, but he's entitled to it. Why should it be in there? Because we should be seen as a world sport, the same as any other world sport. The Olympic Games has moved moved on from it just being amateur and just being running and track and field and these things. It's moved on. We've got golf in there. We've got rugby sevens in there. We've got we've got sports in there that are well watched, high profile sports. Why should our snooker players not have the opportunity to earn a gold medal for their country? That is actually what sport is all about. Opportunity for all. Now, by keeping sports on the outside, it isn't opportunity for all. Because our athletes, our, I'm going to call them athletes, because if you see the way our players train and discipline themselves, you understand it, David, you're in the sport. That discipline and hard work, why should those people not have the opportunity to earn that gold medal and stand on that podium and hold their head high? For this, for this nation or any other nation that they play I've seen it in the World Games We took the snooker back to the World Games in Colombia I've seen it in, other, in the Asian Games It's an amazing thing to put a sport on that podium And see those athletes that have come from Wherever they are in the world And achieve that one thing for their nation But more importantly David To answer the question properly Sports development funding comes through the Olympic programme Yeah it stems down from medal hopes. So, any country that's got medal hopes in any sport mm. f- tends to fund those sports. We are one of the only governing bodies out there. We're one of the only governing bodies in the UK that doesn't receive funding mm. for its national governing body. Mm. We're working with them closely now and we're going to open some doors for them. It doesn't seem fair that, that, that some sports could get 10, 20, 30, 40 million pounds to get kids off the street and get them involved in their sport. We fund. Through the commercial arrangements that we did with World's Nuclear Limited and Matchroom Sport and Barry Hearn, we actually bring in income from those commercial rights, and we reinvest that income into sports development. That is our only income stream to develop this sport, where other sports are receiving substantial sums of money. So the real long-term pitch for me is to ensure that we are treated fairly, the Mm. same as any other sport in the world, and we have the same opportunity to be at that level.
2: Okay, WPBSA its a players' body. What about the players? Um, do you think the players do enough for the sport off the table? Could they do more? Are you
3: happy with the contribution they make when they're not playing, sort of around the, the tournaments? I think I think the players have certainly over the last few years under our new commercial arrangements. They—it's it, been a learning curve for them. I think the sport's been um, very soft on the, the players. Have just you know done their own thing, turned up when they want. Um, they do their PR most of the time. And I think they've had to learn. And some of that is they've had to learn the hard way. We've got a, obviously got a disciplinary structure in place which ensures players need to do their PR and attend their press conferences and everything else. And quite rightly, because that's what the general public pay money to watch this sport for. The players have a responsibility to the buying public, the people who buy those tickets, the people who turn that TV on and watch them. Do they do enough? I think there are some exceptional examples out there that do over and above players like I'll pull an example Sean Murphy is an incredible ambassador he's always there he's always at his press conferences he's always saying the right thing and he's always there if, if, you, know, if you can call on you know, there's a number of players not just on his own but you can call on players and say I need a bit of help can you just come with me we're going to go to a school for example mm. uh, We do a, every city we go to we integrate with the schools in the area now and uh, players, are, players generally speaking are great but we have to educate them as a governing body. We can't expect them just to understand what we need of them. So we're, we're trying to educate them through induction days, bringing them on the tour. Do they do enough? Some don't. And some do, do face disciplinary action because of it. And we don't want to do that. And I have to say that those disciplinary actions have become less and less every year. We've reached a point now where, where there are barely any. Uh, and and we're, we're very pleased with that because it's important. Overseas events, when we're opening up new cities, we do enormous opening ceremonies in in some of the events. The last one in in Daqing in China, for example, is is a terrific opening ceremony. I mean, When you look at it from a player's point of view, why would you not want to be there? It's a great day. It's great PR for everybody. And sometimes we struggle to um, energise the players, shall we say, into being part of that. Uh, I have to say, the majority really get it. Mm. They really do start to get it now and uh, I think as well it's about them feeling like stars and making them feel like professional sportsmen and we have to provide great events and make them feel good as well so it's a two-way
2: street What we have now that we didn't have when you were first chairman is Twitter of course social media all and a lot of players are active on that and just, just sort of talking to a few of them I think some of them are a little bit kind of confused really about what they can and can't say, how, the, how to behave. Because on, on the one hand, they're told to project their personalities, but some of them sometimes say things that then get them into trouble. It's a difficult balancing act for them, and I guess also for the people
3: who ultimately discipline them. Yes, I mean, it's very simple, David. I mean, the the bottom line is, if, if a player goes out there and he puts something out which is in very bad taste, whether it, be, it, may, it may be slightly racial or it may be swearing, it may be abusive content that will be disciplined. We will not take that lightly. Mm. But if a player goes out there and he's having friendly banter with his mates and they're having a laugh and a joke, I'd love to see that. Mm. And in fact, my my guidelines, which I issued to the the player membership, Mm. actually says, we do not want to stop you saying anything. We do not want to um, discourage you from bringing out your personality. We just don't want you to swear... We don't want you to put abusive content up there. But you it's know. difficult, isn't it? Because Mark, Mark, Willi-
2: Mark Williams, before, before the World Championship one year, he put something up which was intended as a kind of a joke, because we know what Mark's like. You know, He was very sort of dead about the crucible, but a lot of people did take offence, and indeed he was fined, I think, £4,000 for it. So I guess the question is, who decides
3: what's a joke and who decides what's bad taste? Well, we, we've obviously got a different disciplinary process. I mean, I have to say, we've got very, a very experienced disciplinary process. Nigel Moore, who looks after WPBSA's disciplinary, is former chief superintendent of the Metropolitan Police. He's been involved in all kinds of cases within sport, uh, both from match fixing end to, to normal disciplinary. And, and we have a set of rules and guidelines. But it really is down to whether the players are. I mean, it's very simple. If the player swears on there, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the players understand that. If they if they just if it's friendly banter, then you know that's very acceptable. And and I think it, it's a fair comment to say there is some confusion. And in fact, yesterday we um, we actually agreed to uh, pass on our uh, social media guidelines to our players forum for a discussion. I would like to understand more where the confusion is from the player membership, in order that we can either amend our rules or or give out clearer guidelines. But it, it it really comes down to a little bit of common sense. I mean, if we look at some of the comments Ronnie O'Sullivan made, um, quite disgraceful. And he's been disciplined accordingly. And, you know, and I, and I heard Ronnie come out, you know, uh, recently saying, you know, the WPBSA is gagging players. Well, uh, it's absolutely rubbish, really. Um, you know, what he put out was abusive and it was not appropriate of a professional sportsman. You know, players have to remember that a lot of their stars are kids. You know, every kid's walking around nowadays with a mobile phone, logging onto Twitter or looking at this and following their stars. Now, if that is the case, you know, the players have to understand that there are certain things you would say to an adult in Friendly Foot and mm. there's certain things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't put in front of young children. And that they have to understand that, that we live in a transparent world now. There is nowhere to hide. We, we, we actually... This digital age now, I mean, people put all kinds of things on Twitter. It never ceases to amaze mm. me. Some people put things on like, I'm going to the shops. I mean, mm. who, you know, who really cares? Yeah. But th- yeah. this, is, this is a, a way, of, way of life nowadays, it's a way of socialising, and we, we need to embrace it as a governing body. I, I do appreciate We don't want to stop it. There are some sports bodies that don't encourage social media or try and stop there players going on social media. We don't want to do that.
2: No, because you, you, you need players to project their personalities, don't you? But uh, I guess it comes down to, you know, you want them to be themselves, but sometimes when people are being themselves, particularly late at night, they might have a drink, you don't know the circumstances, or they just got knocked out of a tournament, and they want to
3: sort of vent on, online, and that's where the trouble starts. Yes, and, you know, as an ex-player, I can understand that, because... You come off a table. You know, we talked about those matches I played at the yeah. Crucible. I remember <laughs> the, when I came off the mm. match. I, I remember playing Stephen Hendry not long after that, the UK Championship, and he beat me nine eight, and I had him dead and buried three or four times. And I was so angry when I came off the table. Um, I, I was I was angry. You know, you walk out of the arena, you you stomping down the street, and, and this is how it starts. But back then we didn't have mobile phones and Twitter. Mm. Now the guys are walking down the street with their mobile phones and they're going, you know, and, and they're, they're saying what they think. So we try and now we'd like to think we can encourage the players not to do something immediately after a match, I mean I think a cooling off period is a, is a good idea um, mm. for players, if you come off the table you shouldn't be pushed straight into a press conference and said, there you go, you know when he's still angry, mm. give him a minute go and get him a glass of water, sit him down in the corners have a minute, You know, and don't I think, turn your phone on don't turn <laughs> your phone on, and, and especially if you're going to go out and, and, and have a good drink that night because mm. you, you, you know, you, I mean if you're going to go out for a good drink, don't take your phone with you, you know? <laughs> or if you do log off of Twitter or Facebook or wherever it is because it, it is fatal and uh, you know, players do say things in, in, in fun sometimes which can be t- perceived as being offensive and um, they just need to be careful we, we don't want to gag them uh, maybe we can you know, maybe it's maybe down to us we need to get, get more feedback from the players I think mm-hmm. on this OK, so just, just to wrap up then, what's the sort of next big
2: challenge that you're, you're looking at? Is it, is it just a question of continuing to look at new markets or, or
3: what, what sort of, what is it, what's next for you? Yeah, big, big challenges really coming ahead. I mean, it's certainly to continue the globalisation and trying to find new markets. We talked about the Middle East. For me, I think the Middle East is, you know, we seem to be flying over the Middle East to China all the time. It's amazing we're not stopping for an event. So I would love to crack a, a major event in the Middle East. And, uh, and certainly I'd like to crack one which is sustainable. Uh, the other, the other big project for me is um, the sustainability of, of our events in cities, and I, I, I want to work closer with the cities that we work in. we're working with. We're doing a hell of a lot of work now with, with Sheffield City Council. Um, we, we're blanket covering all the schools. You know, we're creating the model snooker city, mm-hmm. and I want to use that as a, as a as an example to the world of when snooker comes to town. This is what we bring to the city, and that for me as a community benefit and a, a benefit to the sport is, is very important. So that's a that's a big a big a big area that I'm working in at the moment. Um, I'd like to crack the um, the Olympics as as, a, as as look at that as a longer term goal. We're, we're starting to collate data for a 2024 bid. Mm. Um, we're very excited about it. We're watching closely where that Olympic Games is likely to be, and the market that that Games falls into will obviously depict whether we've got a realistic chance or not. If it falls to the USA, which it may do, then it it may be difficult Mm. for us. So that's a big challenge. And out there um, in the immediate challenges, um, Asia Games as well. Uh, Asia Games is a a major funding stream for sports throughout Asia. We have um, 44, I think, national governing bodies now across Asia. Um, If we get in the Asia Games, they'll all receive funding to help develop develop the sport of snooker. And that's uh, a big project. So, go, so going forward, um, it, it's really more sports development, it's really growing, it's making our events bigger and stronger. Um, I want to see, you know, when the event comes to town, I mentioned this before, that the snooker's come to town. Mm. And, you know, I'd like to think that the snooker stays there when we, when we leave. Uh, I don't want us to be a sport like we've been historically, where we come into a city, an event goes on, we disappear, and we hope to come back next year and the events still be there it doesn't work like that we have to work hard so a great deal of work going into that that um, that work in between events so when we leave sheffield you know all year in sheffield there's been activities regarding snooker and uh, i'd like to think that will lead to the long term sustainability of this sport
2: okay excellent well thanks so we wish you well jason thanks a lot for joining us and thanks to everybody for listening thank you david cheers
0: sports social podcast network